Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Welcome to How Stuff Works Now. I'm your host, Lauren Vogelbaum, a researcher and writer here at How Stuff Works. Every week, I've been bringing you three stories from our team about the weird and wondrous advances we've seen in science, technology, and culture. However, I've got sad news for you today. This is going to be our final week as our producers at How Stuff Works are preparing to launch new projects, which we are as excited about as we are sad about losing this show. This final week, we're answering a few questions that had us curious. If intimate contact can spread disease, then why don't any diseases increase our sex drive? And, unrelated, why is Wednesday spelled so differently from how it's pronounced? But first, managing editor Allison Loudermilk and our freelance writer Lori L. Dove dive into a different historical-slash-cultural question. Why, in these our modern times, do British lawyers still wear powdered wigs? the last time you saw a lawyer or a judge wearing a powdered wig in a U.S. courtroom? Probably never, except perhaps for one of those historic reenactments. In England, though, wigs remain an important part of formal courtroom attire for judges and barristers, the term there for lawyers. Many of the judges and barristers who wear wigs in court say the headpiece, also known as a peruke, brings a sense of formality and solemnity to proceedings. Kevin Newton, a Washington, D.C.-based lawyer who studied law at the University of London, told How Stuff Works that wigs are an emblem of anonymity, an attempt to distance the wearer from personal involvement in a way to visually draw on the supremacy of the law. In fact, wigs are so much a part of British criminal courts that if a barrister doesn't wear a wig, it's seen as an insult to the court. And not just any wig will do. Barristers must wear a wig slightly frizzed at the crown with horizontal curls on the sides and back. It also features two long strips of hair that hang down below the hairline on your neck, and they sport a looped curl at each end. Different types of lawyers have distinctions in the style of wig. A judge's wig is similar, but more ornate. Most wigs are made of white horsehair, 
But as a wig yellows with age, it takes on a coveted patina that conveys experience. Coarse hair might not seem like a particularly precious material, but when you pair specialty hair with an age-old craft of styling, sewing, and gluing, the resulting wigs aren't cheap. A judge's full-length wig can cost more than $3,000, while the shorter ones, worn by barristers, cost more than $500. But why did powdered wigs come on the fashion scene in the first place? Why top one's head with an itchy, sweat-inducing mass of artificial curls? Blame it on syphilis. Wigs began to catch on in the late 16th century, when more Europeans were contracting the STD. Syphilis wouldn't have widespread treatment in the form of antibiotics until the 20th century, courtesy of Sir Alexander Fleming and penicillin. So, back then, people with syphilis were plagued by rashes, blindness, dementia, open sores, and hair loss. The hair loss was particularly problematic in social circles. Long hair was all the rage, and premature balding was a dead giveaway that someone had contracted syphilis. Plus, wigs were a big help to people with lice. After all, it was much more difficult to treat and pick through the hair on one's head than it was to just sanitize a wig. No one arguably had a bigger influence on British wigs than Louis XIV of France. During his reign from 1643 to 1715, the Sun King disguised his prematurely balding scalp, which historians believe was caused by syphilis, by wearing a wig. In doing so, he started a trend that was widely followed by the European upper and middle classes, including his cousin, Charles II, the King of England, also rumored to have contracted syphilis, who reigned from 1660 to 1685. Although aristocrats and those who wished to remain in good social standing were quick to don a wig, English courtrooms were slower, too. In the early 1680s, judicial portraits still showed a natural, no-wig look. By 1685, however, full shoulder-length wigs had become part of the proper court dress. Over time, wigs fell out of fashion with society as a whole. During the reign of England's King George III, from 1760 to 1820, only a few wore wigs, mostly bishops, coachmen, and those in the legal profession. And the courts kept at it for hundreds of years more. It wasn't until 2007 when new dress rules finally did away with barrister wigs. Well, for the most part. Wigs were no longer required during family or civil court appearances, or when appearing before the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. Wigs, however, remain in use in criminal cases. In the UK and Ireland, judges continued to wear wigs until 2011 when the practice was discontinued. In England and other former English and British colonies, like Jamaica, for instance, which ditched the wigs in 2013, lawyers and judges now only wear wigs for ceremonies. The habit persists, though, perhaps for symbolic reasons. After all, adherence to tradition is a powerful human trait. And by the way, before all that wigging out of her wigs started in the 17th century, British lawyers had a dress code that would seem positively modern. They were expected to appear in court with short hair and neatly trimmed beards. Next up, staff editor Eve Jeffcoat and our freelancer Jessalyn Shields explore the biological reasons why, despite the ways in which contagion works, humans are not sex zombies. Diseases are just like the rest of us. They get out there every day and hustle. A pathogen's job is to infect, and if it fails to consistently establish footholds in new hosts, it doesn't survive. And like the rest of us, diseases need to evolve to compete. Every so often, a pathogen happens across a great new strategy for infecting a bunch of people. Take rabies, for example. The virus developed a way to affect its host's behavior so that the host is highly motivated to transmit the virus to somebody else. 
through biting the living crap out of them. That seems like a winning strategy. So why don't all pathogens influence their host's behavior in a way that will make them want to get really close to another potential host? Why, for instance, don't sexually transmitted infections boost our sex drive to guarantee transmission? Well, it's a great premise for a trashy, made-for-TV science fiction movie. But would turning hosts into sex zombies necessarily make the disease any more successful? Possibly. But from a disease transmission perspective, pathogens are also like everybody else in that they can't really choose how they evolve. Though boosting sex drives could be helpful, it wouldn't necessarily enact the right mutations to change a host's behavior. There are very few mechanisms to make that happen. Like rabies, the pathogen could alter the function of its host's nervous system by infecting nervous tissue, or it could manipulate the endocrine system by messing with hormones, or a combination of the two. But assuming any of this actually happened, it would also be important for the mutation not to damage other crucial functions of the pathogen or host in the process, because detrimental mutations don't last in the long run. There's also the small matter of virulence. From a pathogen's perspective, there's a delicate balance between how infectious your host is and how long they can stay contagious. Diseases like Ebola aren't necessarily great at spreading because they kill people very quickly. Going all scorched earth in terms of virulence results in a host who is too incapacitated and dies too quickly to go out to the bars to find somebody to take home to their sick bed. So a disease that makes people horny may be too intense on the brain and cause an early death for the host. That means the disease would always barely stay afloat within a community because it would probably manage to infect only one other animal before its host dies. For all the virulence of Ebola in West Africa, it only succeeds in infecting one and a half more people for every person who comes down with it. On the other hand, for every person who gets the measles virus, 15 others could be infected before the first person gets better or dies. Even though manufacturing sex zombies is a cool idea, Many animals, particularly humans, are pretty good at spotting abnormal social behavior. Just like you'd probably know to avoid a rabbit dog if you saw one, you'd likely also give a wide berth to a sex zombie at the end of a bar riddled with Cupid flu. Finally this week, staff editor Christopher Hasiotis and our freelance writer L'Oreal Dove again dig into a bit of etymology because of that silent D in Wednesday. Most Americans don't pronounce the first D in Wednesday. But there it is, sitting pretty. So what gives? Well, that's a question for the ages. The Middle Ages, to be exact. The medieval period also called the Middle Ages, is a time in European history that stretches from the 5th to the 15th century CE. It's also a time that had great influence over the dialects that would eventually form our modern English language. American English is rooted in ancient European languages. As far back as the 5th century, several related Germanic dialects were introduced to Anglo-Saxon realms in what is now Scotland. As people interacted, languages fused and a dialect known as Old English emerged. This borrowed language which sprung from many roots, continued to transform over the centuries. It later took on the influence of Romance languages, which sprung from Latin, as well as a version of the French language spoken by Viking raiders who conquered areas of England. By the 11th century, this new variety of English became known as Middle English. Even now, language continues to change and adapt because of the influences of a variety of cultures and developments. 
The Merriam-Webster Collegiate Dictionary, for instance, recently upped its content count by more than 1,000 words, adding specimens like binge-watch, photobomb, and truther. The word Wednesday has adapted over time, too. Its origin lies in Old English's Germanic languages, where it emanated from the word Wodnesdag. Throughout Old English and Middle English, it remained an homage to the Anglo-Saxon god Woden and the Germanic god Woden. You may be more familiar with the Norse equivalent Odin, recently prominently featured in the movie adaptations of Marvel's Thor comics. Woden was a powerful god, one who created the human race. He also represented poetry and the arts, but instigated battles and wars. He can be compared in some aspects with the ancient Roman deity Mercury, who is a messenger to the gods. The Germanic god Woden is to a certain degree comparable to Mercury, which is why Wednesday in Romance languages Mercredi in French, Mercoledi in Italian, and Miércoles in Spanish. Now, as Wodenestag moved from Old English to Middle English, its spelling and pronunciation changed. Wednesday is just one example of words like February or Ptarmigan, where letters appear in a word's spelling, but not in its pronunciation. The curious case of America's silent D doesn't extend to parts of England, Scotland, and India, for instance, where many people enunciate the letter. Though some don't. Language is tricky. While there's no specific moment that can pinpoint the fading away of Wednesday's D in spoken American English, and no reason why, though an oceanic divide seems to have spurred language's evolution, the erosion of a pronounced letter over time isn't all that uncommon. Phonologically speaking, when that happens to a letter in the interior of a word, it's called syncope. You may be familiar with syncope as a poetic device, going o'er a river instead of over. And you may not even notice it in some common words that would sound odd with every letter enunciated. Chocolate has a central O that's not fully pronounced, and Christmas sounds more like a celebration of someone called Chris, though it celebrates a figure known as the Christ. That's why people don't eat chocolate on Christmas Day, even when it falls on a Wednesday. Or Woden's Deg. Wednesday. Anyway, the middle of the week. That's our show for this week, and forever. Thank you so much for tuning in and writing in over the past year. We've been so honored by your support. Thanks as well to our producer, Dylan Fagan, our editorial liaison, Allison Loudermilk, and all of our hosts and writers whose work we've been lucky to feature. Their work is also featured on other podcasts in the HowStuffWorks family. Look us up sometime. If you'd like to get in touch, you can still eternally send us an email at nowpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And, of course, for lots more stories like these head on over to our home planet, HowStuffWorks.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. 
until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.